Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. Ah, it's me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on the lovely AM 950 Superstation, based in a bunker in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. How are you? Happy Saturday to you. Happy last Saturday of August. Oh, and let me just tell you, um, those of you here in Minnesota know this, but those who are listening by podcast may not fully appreciate that right now, already, we can feel the tinge of fall in the early morning and late evening hours. I am not ready for it whatsoever, just to let you know. Okay, well, we have a great show. The big interview is with Kevin Lindsay, the former uh, commissioner for the Minnesota Department of Human Rights and currently the head, he heads the Minnesota Humanities Center. In my C block, I'm going to talk about my work rippling and the power of people believing me in me. But let's start um, with our featured idealist. And to do that, we're going to begin with the year 1948. And a student at Oklahoma University... Um, who happened to be the only black student in 1948 out of 12,174 students. That student was named George McLaren. It's a name I'm going to, again, assume that most of you don't know. I keep finding you idealists that are in the background, um, but who (laughs) have done incredible things. On top of George McLaren being the only student at Oklahoma University in 1948. He would be an unusual student in any instance because, first of all, he was married. That's not so unusual, but he was 61 years old when he enrolled at OU. He had retired from a 33-year teaching stint at Langston University. That happened to be Oklahoma's only all-black college. And George McLaren wore a suit every day, He had a master's degree from the University of Kansas um, that he had earned four years before that. And George McLaren attempted to enter Oklahoma University's doctoral program at the College of Education only to be rebuffed, only to be told in early 1948 that he could not attend Oklahoma University because he was black. Now, think about this if you would. Most people, by the time they reach age 61, are ready to retire, ready to throttle back and enjoy what time they have left on this earth. But not George McLaren. At 61, he decided he'd be the test case to desegregate Oklahoma University. Much what I'm sharing here is from an article in the OU Daily by Emma Keith. Why George McLaurin and why at so late in his life? Well, for one thing, his wife, Penina, P-E-N-I-N-A-H, had tried to do the very same thing, that is, integrate Oklahoma University. Uh, She had tried to do it by enrolling, trying to enroll in 1923, 25 years earlier than what George McLaurin was doing. She failed, of course. But that gives you the, an idea of the kind of marriage that she and George had. Two idealists, a couple, a couple not at all satisfied with the white supremacy status quo. But George was selected to break uh, Oklahoma University's discriminatory policies because, precisely because he was so quote-unquote dignified. The NAACP, which represented him in his lawsuit against OU, 
was very particular about the plaintiffs it was willing to represent. You may recall that the, uh, that, um, the case that ended se- segregation in public transportation in Montgomery, Alabama, um, with the great Rosa Parks, um, was also an NAACP case. And the NAACP chose her because of her stability and position in the community. But earlier in 1955, so Rosa Parks, um, she refused to give up her seat in December of 1955. But earlier that year, in the summer of 1955, another black woman, this one, a pregnant teen, had refused to give up her seat. But the NAACP didn't press her case because it feared that she would, it feared that that young woman would feed into negative stereotypes. So they waited for Rosa Parks. As the OU Daily article noted, one of the attitudes fueling segregation in colleges and universities was the belief that black men were attempting to get into college solely to prey on white women college students. (laughs) Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? But I am absolutely positive that that was a fear held by many white people. Initially, Oklahoma University denied George McLaren admission. And in early 1948, um, his NAACP lawyers filed a suit in state court. After the state courts upheld the denial to admit, the NAACP went to federal court and obtained an order that he be admitted. So George started at OU, Oklahoma University, in October of 1948, several weeks after the school year had already started. But not to be outdone... OU segregated George from academic and student life. Um, if you Google George McLaren, all you have to do, and his, his, his last name is spelled M-C-L-A-U-R-I-N. If you Google George McLaren, you will see a picture of him seated at a desk in a room adjacent to a classroom filled with white students sitting in rows. There's a half wall and a pillar blocking part of George's view of the blackboard that the white students had a very clear view of. So they put, they said, okay, you, you know, the court's telling us that you have to attend school here. That's fine. We're going to put you off in a corner where you just barely can even see the blackboard. In the cafeteria, George was made to sit by himself and forced to eat at times when white students weren't present. In the library, George was given a separate table behind piles of newspapers so they wouldn't be seen. George then again sued, saying that this separate treatment violated his rights. This time, though, the federal court sided with Oklahoma University, saying, quote, racial segregation is a deeply rooted social policy of the state of Oklahoma, unquote. In fact, Oklahoma had laws on its books that anyone who permitted school desegregation, anyone who said, no, this is wrong, no, we're going to allow black and white students to go to school together just like anybody else, Oklahoma had a state law that said if you did that, we're going to charge you criminally and fine you. (laughs) Power of the state, That that is white supremacy at its most extreme. And I need to again remind you that George was 61 years old. (laughs) Why put himself through that? (laughs) Why? Well, idealists do such things. That's the simple answer. Eventually, George appealed the federal district court ruling about, you know, nope, it's okay to have you off in a separate 
spaces at the at at the at the university. George appealed that. Okay, the NAACP took the case. Um, that case and also a case of a black University of Texas law student because the University of Texas law school wasn't allowed black, black people to go to school, law school. Um, and it made their way, both those cases made their way to the Supreme Court. And in June 1950, nearly two years after George uh, started at um, Oklahoma University, um, that is, by the way, two years of being lessened, L-E-S-S-E-N-E-D, lessened, diminished as a human on a daily basis, two year, after two years of that, the U.S. Supreme Court in a unanimous decision ruled that Oklahoma University and the University of Texas Law School violated the U.S. Constitution by not treating white and black students equally. This was chipping away at the Supreme Court's horrible, shameful, 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson separate but equal ruling. And eventually George's case and the Texas case would be used as a basis for the monumental 1954 Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education. So the 61-year-old idealist who's after after he's done, he's retired from teaching 33 years, you know, he's got his master's he could have just, you know, gone off and just done what retired people do. He did not do that. He did not do that. And instead, because the 61-year-old man said, I'm going to change Oklahoma University, because he did that, he changed America. <laughs> So those retirees, those of you who are like retired or getting close to getting retired right now, hearing my voice, it's never too late for you to be an idealist. Um, but, uh, you know, not long after that, not long after the Supreme Court's decision, George ended his studies at OU. He didn't get his de doctorate degree. His mission was accomplished, and he apparently decided that then it was truly time to retire. But that was not the same with his wife, Panenna who enrolled, she went and enrolled finally at Oklahoma University to get her master's degree in home economics in 1954, more than 30 years after she first tried to enroll at OU. She graduated there with her master's. Today, OU hosts a yearly conference, the George McLaren Male Leadership Conference, aimed at recruiting black men, black males, and helping them prepare to enter into the professional world. So it's like, let's, we're going to bring in black men, we're going to educate them here, and then we're going get, to get them, we're going we're to propel them into the professional world where they'll be ready. Um, it's nice rippling, that conference, nice rippling from the bravery and courage of an idealist. You know, I'm not 61, I am 64, but learning about George McLaren has helped further steal my resolve as an idealist. You can never, ever be too old to change the world. Remember that, please. Okay, that's the end of our A Block. Um, when we come back from the break, we will interview Kevin Lindsay um, about from the Minnesota Humanities Center. You will love listening to Kevin, and hopefully you love listening to me, Ellie 2.0 Radio. Follow me on Twitter, at Ellie Krug. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Of Galileo, king of night vision, king of inside. 
And we're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. So, listeners, um, yes, please do, as I requested in the prior segment, check out George McLaren. And all you have to do is Google. Um, but if you do a, a an, like an extra step, you'll come up with that OU um, uh, uh, magazine article about him. Okay. All right. So very worthwhile reading. And now something else very worthwhile. Um, the big interview, um, uh, for the big interview, I have Kevin Lindsay on the line. He is currently uh, the president of the Minnesota Humanities Center. And Kevin, I may have... You may have a different title than that, but you head the Minnesota Humanities Center. And, and listeners, you may recognize the name Kevin Lindsay because um, for a good chunk of time, Kevin was uh, the commissioner for the Minnesota Department of Human Rights. Kevin, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Oh, Kevin, I'm thrilled to have you on here. Listeners, you should also know that Kevin and I are friends. He and I have known each other for a number of years. And, um, and Kevin, uh, I wanted, I've wanted you to have you on the show for a long time, uh, simply because I, you know, I think you are quite the idealist and why don't we begin by talking a little bit about, um, why don't we talk is begin talking about the Minnesota Humanities Center and tell us a little bit about what it is and then we'll weave in some of your background and uh, and some of uh, we can you and I can talk about changing the world together. How does that sound? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wonderful. I mean, that we have look, you know we've got you know twenty three minutes to do that. I mean, we'll get it all done. <laughs> <laughs> No problem at all. No problem at all. So the Minnesota Humanities Center is uh, celebrating its 50th year oh, in existence. How great. Uh, if we think about the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities at the federal level, Congress, a little more than 50 years ago, provided funding to support enrichment of the humanities and arts throughout our entire country. The states then followed suit and then identified or created humanities organizations or arts organizations to partner with these federal uh, agencies. Minnesota was one of the early adopters of creating a humanities center. And uh, today there is one in each state in the United States. And there's also one in the six territories of the United States as well. And we do a variety of different things at the Minnesota Humanities Center. We seek to inspire uh, different stories uh, within education, within K-12 and within college. So you'll see some of the things that we're doing of highlighting, amplifying the stories of African-Americans, Latinos, uh, Asian-Americans that sometimes don't always end up within textbooks. And that's important because it's important for children to be able to see themselves within the materials that end up within the classrooms. And uh, inclusion um, hey, and ideas from... Yeah, Kevin. Let me interrupt you, okay? So, um, you and we, you and I had an interview a talk yesterday to prepare for this, and I forgot mm -hmm. to tell you, um, but I I think you might find this of great interest. State of Iowa just came out like on Wednesday a report about its social studies program. Do you mm -hmm. know that the word slavery does not show up in any <laughs> of the state sanctioned social studies uh, materials? It's unfortunate uh, that I'm not surprised. <laughs> <by that. laughs> so, yeah, I think when you look at some of the, the textbooks uh, around the, the country, 
your surprise things, which uh, objectively just happened, uh, just don't appear within the textbooks. Um, and right. I get it. it uh, but there's always a, to the victor goes to spoils kind of thing, and you seek to rewrite history. But this is common history for all of us. Right. Um, well, we need to own up to it. Well, thanks for letting me interrupt you about that. But as you were describing about the stories, okay, you know, that mm-hmm. just triggered the thought in me about how it is so important that what your, you know, the Humanity Center is doing is is helping to educate about the things that you say to the victors get the spoils that people in power choose not to highlight, right? No, that's exactly right. We partnered with the the federal courthouse to do uh, a webinar for attorneys and for the public on the Duluth lynching. And what is uh, amazing to me when we do these type of presentations is how many Minnesotans, uh, primarily white males, uh, between 50 and, say, 70, such as Judge Thunheim, that are really upset over the fact that they look back that this is a story that they did not know anything about until very recently. Right. So, um, and when we talk about the movie The Green Book uh, (laughs) and where you can and can't go, uh, a lot of people are surprised that Duluth was uh, one of those type of cities um, which people were talking about within a green book of where you could be and not. So wow. we should, um, wow. you know, not bury our, hand, our heads in the sand as it relates to the past, but we do need to uh, address it and get to true reconciliation. We can only do that if we have truth. So. And Kevin, I interrupted you. So what else does the Humanities Center do? I'm so sorry. Um, but we went down, no you know, we, we took a detour, but let's get us back on the main road. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things the Humanities Center does as well is that we also issue grants to organizations. Um, so right now we have grants available on our website uh, for folks to apply for uh, as part of the American Rescue Plan. And then in a couple of weeks, we will roll out cultural heritage uh, grants. And this is money that was made available from the Minnesota legislature. And this allows organizations to use uh, arts and literature and storytelling to powerfully tell the stories of their respective communities. And this, uh, again, is an opportunity for folks to own their own stories and chart their own uh, future going forward. So we're very excited about the role that we play within that space on sort of issuing grants. I mentioned earlier that we also create programming when I was talking about the June 14th event. Uh, We do a wide variety of uh, programming as well within the state. We sometimes partner uh, and talk about history, like I mentioned earlier, but sometimes we create space for citizens to be involved on issues that uh, of concern for them. So we're doing a lot right now on water stewardship. There are probably people who've seen our work with We Are Water across the state, in which we talk about water stewardship issues, and we've been doing that for the last four years. Or sometimes we raise issues concerning treaties. We have a traveling exhibit called Why Treaties Matter, which has been traveling throughout the state now for about eight years. So very excited about those two type of exhibits. So Kevin, and to a certain degree, I'm going to guess that, you know, the Minnesota Humanities Center is kind of like behind the scenes on a lot of things, and people may be familiar with what it is, um, uh, you know, 
what the work is that they do, but they might not necessarily know that it's the Minnesota Humanities Center that's doing that work or funding it for another organization. No, that's exactly right. So recently we had uh, the trial of the century with Derek Chauvin. And one of the things that the Humanities Center did is we partnered with KMOJ Radio um, and then uh, folks within the Ampers Network to embed two reporters to talk about that trial from the perspective of African-Americans. Yeah. And then various podcasts were then created out of that material as well. Okay. So yep. that, that will be a conversation that we will use and kind of jumpstart conversations on criminal justice issues. Okay. Uh, we're doing a project, too, with the University of Minnesota. I'd uh, love to tell you more about that maybe as we emerge from the other side of the break. Uh, we have uh, Attorney General Ellison, Booker Hodges from the Department of Public Safety, and then the correspondent, Georgia Fort, that was covering the Chauvin trial to be talking about media and protests and what it, it felt like to be actually on the ground in the crowd um, and, and being shot at with uh, rubber bullets, as they say. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, Kevin, you're you're very good, and you, you know how this radio business works. We do need to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. Uh, listeners, I've been speaking with Kevin Lindsay, who is the Executive Director and President of the Minnesota Humanities Center. Um, when we come back for our break, we'll continue with Kevin. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me. I love hearing from you at elliejkrug at gmail.com. We'll be back in a sec. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, before we took the break, we were speaking with Kevin Lindsay, former commissioner for the Minnesota Department of Human Rights and currently the president or chief executive officer for the Minnesota Humanities Center. Kevin, before we took our break, you were talking about a special project that the Humanities Center engaged in around what you called the trial of the century, and I could not agree more, um, with Derek Chauvin. And, and tell us a little bit more about that and, and, you know, the Humanities Center in the background, but doing important work around this. I mean, they're, they're, they're able to fund some things and help direct some things. No, that's exactly right. We, we thought it was really important to kind of use the trial of the century in this way to jumpstart a larger conversation on criminal justice reform. So we're in the process now of kind of framing out that conversation. Uh, one of the things I talked earlier about grants, we have provided grants to the Minnesota Prison Writers Workshop. Yeah. Um, and in that space, there is an award that's given out for writers that are in correctional facilities. Uh, Minnesota can be proud of the fact that the uh, writers in Minnesota, uh, swept more than half of the awards the last time. And we really credit that to the amazing work being done by the Minnesota Prison Writers Workshop folks. We also fund uh, efforts. There's going to be a play uh, likely on Mixed Blood stage in the spring called the Incarceration Play Project. These are an effort we funded with Wanderlust Theater. Uh, they do story circles with individuals who are incarcerated to be able to really tell the story uh, from the perspective of the individuals impacted. Um, that will be something uh, we're really excited about weaving in and kind of changing the narrative as to 
who is uh, incarcerated and their opportunities after leaving. And then, um, well, there's a variety of other conversations, such as Emily Baxter, with some of the yep. work that she has done with We Are All Criminals. Yep. But for us, we're hoping that to jumpstart this conversation with uh, Georgia Ford, that some of the stories that folks don't normally hear in and around a trial, that we'll be able to kind of go around the state and facilitate conversations because it's so difficult to be able to change um, long-term change unless you really change the narrative. And we really see that the role for the Minnesota Humanities Center is to really help change a narrative, which is just more positive and more inclusive within that space. Well, and Kevin, I will tell you, we had, um, Brett will recall, a couple of weeks ago we had uh, uh, Renee Lenore Hansen uh, here who um, lives in on the range and um, who's written a book about the um, climate change and, and battling a personal illness. But she and I, I had her on the show because we wanted to talk about the divide between greater Minnesota and, you know, and the, you know, urban Minnesota, mainly the Twin Cities. And one of the things that she and I centered on was this concept of, you know, fear. You know, both camps are f- afraid of other things related to, you know, e- you know, the, the, the other camp. And, you know, the only, the, how do we get, the only way that we get past that is by talking to each other, right? And facilitating oh. conversations. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, 200%. So one of the things within that space, uh, trying to bridge that rural-urban divide, is that we also participate in a group called TRUE. And TRUE stands for Transforming Rural Understanding of Equity. Transforming Rural Understanding of Equity. And this is uh, a partnership uh, we've undertaken with the Blandon Foundation and several other organizations to really facilitate um, every third Tuesday a conversation on what really what does really uh, it look like for equity? What does equity really mean? And trying to break down uh, some of these straw uh, people kind of arguments and try to get to really the heart of the conversation that we need to be having is that we are much stronger as a society when we create more inclusion and create more opportunities for for more people. If people wanted to, if listeners wanted to find out more about True, how could they do that? Where would they go to get that information? If you go to the Blandon website, okay. you will find information about True Tuesdays. Um, I think our next event is going to be on September 21. But yes, you can go to the Blandon website and find out more about True Tuesdays. Uh, a wide variety of different conversations uh, have been had there. Uh, we've had some folks talking about the immigrant experience. We've had folks talking about what happens when hate comes to your town and how right. you can work with advocates to address those kind of concerns. Uh, we've also talked about the beauty of what's being created uh, within uh, equity and inclusion around the state. So uh, it's a really great effort. Uh, it's been going on for about a year, and we really hope to grow that even more. I'm really excited about the work that the folks at Blandon have really kind of kicked off within that space. It's beyond Blandon, but Blandon uh, definitely deserves a lion's share of the thanks right. for the work that they've undertaken. Well, I had no idea, and um, we, <laughs> I will investigate this, you can be assured. Um, you know, Kevin, one of the things that I've always admired about you, and I'm being very serious here, is that you, you are... You know, you're not flashy, okay? You're you're just you know you're a very 
um, steady person in many ways, but you know, you're, you and I talked, you're a little bit of an introvert like I am, but what I love about you, Kevin, and I mean this, you use your imagination. You know, when you were the commit, well, when you were the commissioner for the Department of Human Rights, I mean, you're, you, you directed, you got the commission going in a variety of directions to stop school bullying, about getting women into construction industries, about banning the box, you know, um, about, you know, the box about on job applications, about whether you've uh, been, uh, you know, convicted of a crime or maybe even arrested of a crime for a crime, you know. And, and, and it, it's about you, you know, one of the hallmarks of idealism is using your imagination and thinking of how things could be different because, I mean, you've worked with government for a long time and, and other organizations and you know, um, people get into these modalities of, well, we've always done it this way. Why would we change? <laughs> right. Am I wrong? <laughs> Well, I have to say that if there was a saying that Governor Dayton hated more than any other, it was when people started out, well, we have done it this way forever. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, right. yes, uh, we, we are incredible beings, and sometimes I think you're exactly right, is that we stumble by not bringing our imagination to the plate. When we had the very first Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Council meeting, uh, at the state of Minnesota, because uh, we changed uh, the idea of affirmative action council, right? Right. To one that was more inclusive, um, and the idea of all citizens, right, should have a, a place at the table within their government. So in the movie Apollo 13, they talk about sort of this idea that uh, the astronauts are going to run out of uh, oxygen unless they can reconfigure a portion of the spacecraft. And basically what they do is they bring a bunch of engineers in a room and they say, here's the tools the astronauts have. Here's what we need to do. You got an hour, go figure it out. <laughs> right. And we, you know, basically it reiterated the message is if we can do things like that with our imagination, well, why can't we uh, find spaces and, and create more inclusion for people? What is stopping us in that way? And it's just um, sometimes just the inability to use our imagination to imagine a new reality. A new way, a new way of doing things. Well, but Kevin, you know, I, again, I want to give you credit. You get into roles of leadership, and you, you know, you don't just sit back. And and I, I, I just applaud you for that. I mean, you're just like, why can't we do this? And and I, it, I have this sense that the Minnesota Humanities Center, we're going to be seeing a whole lot more stuff. Uh, coming out of your organization that's going to be innovative and a product of your imagination, that of your team um, as well. Kevin, um, let me ask you this because we've got about uh, three and a half minutes left. Mm -hmm. What, you know, I mean, uh, again, one of the things I love about you is we have Iowa, uh, in, you know, Iowa <laughs> connection together. You graduated from the University of Iowa Law School. I lived uh, 20 miles away from Iowa City. You were also, um, you know, the ver first and only black editor in chief of the Minnesota of the Iowa Law Review, and um, and there are only about 40 black uh, um, editors in chief in the entire history of law schools in the country. Um, let me ask you this, okay? What mm -hmm. made you an idealist? Because you started down the road of working at a large law firm where you could have made, continue to make very good money, but you diverted from that and you got into public service and you continued to be in public service in one form or another. What made you so idealistic? 
Oh, I'd have to attribute that to my family. Um, my mom, when she retired, uh, and even a couple of years before she retired, she talked about how it was so important for her to come to Monson, Arkansas, a town of a little less than 10,000 people, uh, about, you know, 90 minutes away from Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, back to her hometown, back to her roots, because it was so important to go back and lift up uh, those that may not have had the same opportunities that you had and that you should really pour yourself into that space. Uh, I really feel very fortunate uh, to have been blessed with the, the parents that I had. Uh, they were outstanding examples of that. Uh, my dad uh, is probably where I get that kind of quiet approach and kind of letting your work do the talking as opposed to you being out front. Um, so many different roles, so many different hats that he, he wore for other organizations. And all uh, you know, jovial mood, very uh, gregarious, uh, personal man, uh, but really, just really centered about putting other folks first. Well, I would say that you have certainly taken, you know, his lead and followed in his footsteps. Um, if people want to find out more about the Minnesota Humanities Center, um, could you give out the website, please? Yeah, if people want to find out more about the Minnesota Humanities Center, uh, feel free to go to uh, MN for Minnesota, HUM.org for the Minnesota Humanities Center, and you can find out a, a wide range of information. So, Kevin, um, I would really love to have you back on the show again, maybe in a year, um, so that we can find out how else you've used your imagination and your team has used its imagination with the Minnesota Humanities Center. Um, and I would love to have a conversation with you about the idea of reconciliation in Minnesota as well as in our country. We oh, I would really, I would really love that opportunity. I appreciate uh, the, the time we spent today uh, on the show. We're already giving some thought about how we could creatively use food. Uh, one of the humanities officers is Rose McGee, a sweet potato comfort pie. She started that after the death of Michael Brown, driving uh, comfort pies down there and bridging people with conversation. So we're going to be expanding that kind of concept and idea. I sent a text uh, to Attorney General Allison uh, one of the times that she's up at the podium about how arts and humanities can be really a solve and, and an opportunity for connection within our state. So I'm looking hopefully to do more with his office going forward in that space. And then lastly, I think we want to have a conversation as the country turns 250 on how we could maybe reimagine the Constitution. Maybe we should have a statewide conversation with high school students. So I'd love to come back and have a conversation with you. Well, and Kevin, please know if there's any way I can help, okay, please let me know that. All right. Because I will do that. Call upon me because uh, I really believe in you and I believe in what you're doing, you and your team, what they're doing. Okay. Thank you, my friend. Oh, thank you, my friend. Thanks for being on LE 2.0 Radio. L listeners, we've been speaking with Kevin Lindsay, who is the president's chief executive officer for the Minnesota Humanities Center, um, and who is quite the idealist and big thinker. If you like what you hear, okay, go visit my website at elliekrug.com. Tell others about this show. When we get the big interview and we get them like with people like Kevin, they are things to share about. When we come back from the break, I'll do my C-block and talk about my work as an idealist. Thanks. Thanks.
we're back. Ellie 2.0 oh, Radio. Um, I could have talked to Kevin Lindsay for, I don't know, a couple of hours um, because he does use his imagination and the things he touches, things that he thinks of, they happen. We will have him back on. Trust me. Okay, we're in my C block right now. I talk about my work. I've got uh, not a whole lot of time to do that, but a couple of things happened this week um, that I want to share with you. So the very first thing is I spoke to a large international company uh, this week. I did my famous gray area thinking training, and this is an international company, so they wanted me to speak twice. They wanted me to speak in the morning at, at 8 and the evening at 7. Uh, to catch different time zones. It was wonderful, the evening talk. I had a lot of Brits on there. It was just wonderful to hear the accents. Um, the reason I'm telling you about that is because, uh, first of all, the only reason that I that company even knew about me is because the somebody who had formerly worked at another company where I had spoken had remembered me. And now she was with this new company, the big international one, and when they were trying to talk about, you know, diversity and inclusion speakers and all that stuff, as she related to me, she said, Ellie, you're the only speaker's name that I ever remembered. And she shared it with this company and then they reached out and I ended up, you know, working with them. And of course that helps pay the bills. But more importantly, it gave me, I mean, by the time we were done, I spoke to nearly 500 people. So it gave me the opportunity to talk to 500 people and convey some ideas about human inclusivity, about, about getting past how we group and label other humans and about how we have good empathetic hearts. It's my gray area thinking training. People love it. Um, the other thing is that she, sent, she shared with me um, a message from someone, and I, I, I'm going to be very careful about what I say because um, I don't want to disclose any identities, but essentially... The message was, this was somebody who had attended my training. The message was, she, this person sending the message was somebody of the LGBTQ community working for the big international company. And that person wrote, never in my lifetime did I ever think that I would ever see a transgender person presenting to a major international company on diversity and inclusion. It so warmed my heart to read those words because it's true. We, <laughs> because I don't do this work alone, uh, we show up in places where formerly transgender people, people who are other, would not be allowed. Just like George McLaren. I'm, no, I'm not, trust me, I'm not saying I'm George McLaren by any stretch. Just that he showed up in a place where he was not expected. So, okay, so that was the first great, you know, thing that happened to me this week related to my work. Secondly is I got a letter, a letter. <laughs> Listeners, if you, you know, those who are long time, you know that I am a big advocate of putting pen to paper or pen to note card you know, writing wonderful words down and, you know, sealing the envelope, putting a stamp on it, putting in the, you know, mailbox. And somebody did that for me this week. And it was somebody I, uh, who had also championed my work with a different company um, and who wrote to me to say, 
that there had been like, you know, kind of a year end recap of, of work that some committee had done around diversity and inclusion. And so they, you know, they brought people in and like, okay, let's reflect on what, you know, what happened this year. And the letter writer wanted to relay to me that there had been a older white color man, straight, who had said, my talk, which was gray area thinking, that that had profoundly impacted him in a positive way. And she took the time to write me a note, letting me know that this conversation had happened, that this man had been positively impacted. And then she wrote in in her note that this gave her great satisfaction within the organization because she felt that she had helped, I mean, and literally she did help make all of it happen because, but for her championing me to work there or to come in and speak, I wouldn't have. So, so listeners, it's all about showing up first and then how things ripple to other humans. It's that rippling that is so incredibly important because when we ripple, we can inspire. And when we inspire, we can change perspective. And when we change perspective, we can get change that will last. We can. Change will never happen by ordering people. Ever. Okay, well, listen, um, this is another show. Uh, Next week is going to be a best of Ellie because it's Labor Day weekend. But you'll have me back in uh, September and I'll have some more guests. When I have guests, the show always works so much better. Um, new guests, okay? Uh, big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. I haven't had Brett in the seat for a while. God, Brett, it's so great to see you. You always protect me so much from all my gaffes. And you listeners, I hope that you have a good rest of the summer. Because next time I talk to you, um, we're going to be very close to the beginning of fall. Um, go out, do something to make the world better. Please talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.